Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Mark 3, verses 20 to 35. Jesus accused by his family and by teachers of the law. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brother are sitting looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we do come before you with a... This unsettledness in our heart with the things going on in the world with a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, anxiety that we feel, uh, even with all this rain happening in Brisbane right now, Lord, we, we feel it. And Lord, we pray as we come now to sit under your word that you'll settle our hearts. You'll give us a sense of peace, that, you'll, that you by your spirit will move our hearts to want to wanna hear you speak to us and hear your word and, how, and consider how we can respond to it as well. Uh, I do pray, Lord, as we think through this this. Um, passage in Mark and hearing about who Jesus is, help us, Lord, to to recognize Him and to see Him for His uh, and His beauty, see Him in His glory, and so that we as Christians, Lord, uh, those who 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 want to know You, who want to worship You, uh, will live lives that do please You and that do honor His name above our own. I do pray for this now in Your Son's name, Amen. Uh, my first question to start off with. Do you know what you call people who are fanatics about Harry Potter? Do you know the name that you give them? People who love Harry Potter. Does anyone know? I looked this up this week. I don't know why. But I looked this up and did you know that those who are diehard fans of Harry Potter are called Potterheads? Did you know that? You did because you're a Potterhead? Maybe. <laughs> I learned that this week, and, and it then put me down this rabbit hole of looking for other nicknames given to fan bases, right? Now, if you, uh, I found a few of them. If you love Taylor Swift, what are you called? Swifty. Oh, thanks, Anna. Uh, Beyonce, you're part of the beehive because she's the queen bee. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and uh, there's another one, um, Eminem, you're a stan because that's one of his songs called Stan, which is about a fanatic, a fan that's a stan. Uh, who, uh, 
What about, have you ever heard of the Dummy Army? The people who love Dummy M, she's an Australian singer, if you don't know her. Dummy M, the Dummy Army. Uh, Believers, Justin Bieber. Now, if you talk to any of these fans, it's amazing how much they know, how much they know about Harry Potter, Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber. I did a quick search about Justin Bieber because I, I wanted to find out more information about him. He's, he's a guy I, I sort of like. I'm not a believer myself, but he goes to church. I found out he goes to, he, he used to go to Hillsong, the big church Hillsong, and he moved now to another church called Church Home in, in the U.S., another mega church. He loved watching The Lion King growing up. That was his favorite Disney movie. He, uh, his favorite singers include people like Usher, Craig David, Justin Timberlake, if you guys know those names. He's not a cat person. So him and I could be friends. He's also got a bit of claustrophobia. He doesn't like elevators, apparently. He still uses them. And he's terrified of, do you guys know what he's terrified of? Clowns. He's terrified of clowns. Man, I, I totally relate to that one. Now, I don't know if you knew that about JB, Justin Bieber. But this is the stuff that is readily available. This information is readily available on the internet. I think there are lots of believers out there who are just sharing this information about him. This is the stuff that interviewers are asking him because this is what his fans want to know. It's so interesting, isn't it? All this inside information. You know his darkest fears. Have you even met Justin Bieber, though? He's scared of clowns, but I've never even met the guy. Why do I know this about him? I know him on this personal level, what he loves and what he hates. And it's so interesting that believers, fans, would want to go to this extent. I like his songs, yes, but I'm not a believer. I'm not a, even a friend of Justin Bieber's. I'm not in his inner circle of trust. I do follow him on Instagram, just FYI, and I did message him once, and he never replied, which I'm okay about. I'm not offended. But, you know, truthfully, even though I know a lot about him, even though I know what he loves and what he hates, I even know which tattoo artist he goes to because it's one of my favorites too. But even though I know all that stuff, do you think Justin Bieber knows me? Or do you think that that qualifies me to be his friend, to be part of his inner circle? It doesn't, does it? And sometimes we feel that way with people that we follow on social media, people who we, uh, we, read, their we read their posts, we see their stories online, their updates. We wish them a happy birthday on their Facebook birthday when Facebook reminds us. We see their photos uh, and we feel like we know them, you know, the pictures of their family, their holidays, even the food that they eat. Oh, I know that person. Yeah, I, I follow them on Facebook. We see parts of their life on display and we feel like we know them. And isn't that sometimes the case for us as Christians? Isn't that sometimes the case for many of us? If we go to church, we also think that way about Jesus, Jesus the Christ. The name we give to those who follow Christ are Christians, right? The fan base. And there are many Christians who know a lot about Jesus. Wow. The stories about what he did, the, when he lived, the names of his parents even, Mary and Joseph, some of the miracles he performed. We know about those stories. His biography even, sure. But do you know him? I mean, do you know, know him? Are we just fans of Jesus? Or are we followers? Would he consider us even part of his family, part of his inner circle? That's the confronting question that is before us in this passage. Do we truly know who this man is? What does it mean to know him? Because even the people in this part of the narrative, in this part of the story, are faced with that question. People who even call themselves his family. It's crazy. I want us to note something down, though, before we get started. Mark, uh, Mark is telling the story. He's the author uh, of 
this gospel. And sometimes he does these passages throughout, this, uh, throughout his gospel that are like sandwiches. Okay, now you know what I mean. Two slices of bread and filling in the middle, a sandwich, right? Do you, who likes sandwiches here? Do you guys like sandwiches? My favorite is probably a Reuben or a toasted BLT. That, yum, right? But Mark makes these two slices of bread and he has this filling in the sandwich in this passage. And that's what's happening here too. There's about nine passages like this throughout the book of Mark where he writes like a sandwich. And in any good sandwich, what do you focus on the most? The filling, the middle, right? The bread is good, but you don't need bread alone. Oh, some do, but you don't need the bread alone. You want to have the filling. That's what makes a good sandwich. Now, we're in this story. Jesus, again, is with his crowds, with the crowds. And, and so far in these three chapters we've heard, we've heard about who this man is, right? That he's the son of God, the Messiah from chapter one. He's, we've heard that he's healed a paralytic and he forgave his sins. Last week, we heard about his how he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, which means he fulfills the law, the laws of God, but it's also through him we find rest from our religion. Now, in our narrative here, this story comes uh, after he's just called his 12 disciples. You know, if you know your Bible or Christianity, you know that he has 12 apostles, disciples. Um, they drop everything they're doing to follow him. And that just comes uh, in chapter 3. We're here at verse 20 now. This is where we're going to pick it up. And we're going to look at our first slice of our sandwich. Let's look at it. Verse 20, 21. Let's read it again. If you have your Bibles open, that'll be really helpful. Verse 20 says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. First slice, Jesus has got this celebrity status, right? And he's got crowds coming to him. He's in the house again, and they're piling in, and he can't even eat with his disciples. His family has heard about this. They're worried about him. Jesus, you, you're not eating? <laughs> like You've got crowds swarming you? You know, you can imagine that, right? Your mom or dad calling you up, have you eaten yet? Like, that's the first question. You know how, have you ever texted your dad, and he doesn't really talk much? He just answers with words like, okay. And the question, the only question he ever asks you is, have you eaten yet? That's what's going on. Have you, they're worried he hasn't eaten yet. They, they want him to, well, maybe that's what they're worried about because that's what they're, they're, all of a sudden, they're worried. And they're saying this stuff, he's out of his mind. He's gone mad. He's crazy. What do they want to do then? They want to take charge of him. They want to uh, take him and take care of him. This man, right, Jesus, who already we've heard, he's forgiven sins healed the sick, interpreted the law, like all these things, the family goes, no, we need to take care of him. We need to take charge of him. He's gone mad now. That's what's happening, right? That's the first slice of the sandwich. That's what we're hearing about the family. They're worried about Jesus. They want to take charge of him. They think he's gone mad. Now, what happens all of a sudden? The scene changes. You know, like any good TV show, there's a, there's a scene transition, right? To the next scene. Cut, chop, scene transition. We'll come back to the family. What happens next? The feeling happens here. Verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, these are Jewish teachers of the Jewish law, right? They've heard, uh, they've heard about Jesus. He's in town. And they're leaving. Uh, they, they want to confront Jesus. They're thinking already last week we heard that the people, the, the Jewish law, the teachers, they were already conspiring to somehow arrest and kill Jesus for blasphemy when he, uh, for the things he's been doing. Now, these guys come down from Jerusalem. That's the capital city. That's the big city. This, this is 
a threat, le- threat level, right? This is like threat level midnight. Code red, right? The bigwigs have calmed down. They want to stop this man. This is the claim. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Where have you heard that name come up before? Who likes karaoke here? You guys, don't, don't be shy. I know you guys, a lot of you guys like karaoke, right? And what's the best song you ever sing in karaoke? Bohemian Rhapsody. Come on, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Best songs in karaoke. And what's that line in Bohemian Rhapsody? Mamma mia, mamma mia, mamma mia, let me go. Bills above has the devil put aside for me. Yeah. Do you guys know that? Okay, thank you, guys. That's one of the best lines in the song. Bills above, right? That's, that's where the name comes up. It's in that song, but it's about it's, that name is given to the devil, Satan. It's a reference to the spirit of Baal. That's where the, the root comes from, Bills of Baal. Um, but that's the ancient, it's the ancient god of the Babylonians. Uh, it, what it's used here to refer to Satan, the devil, God's adversary, God's enemy. And so the Jewish teachers of the law want to make this claim, you're driving out demons by the power of the devil, who has the power over demons. That's what they're saying. Note this, though. They're not, they're not denying his power. They're not saying, you're, not, this is, you're a fake. They can see that he's performing this, these miracles, casting out demons, but they're saying the power by which he's doing that is by the devil himself. Jesus replies in verse 23, how can... Satan drive out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Firstly, Jesus says this doesn't make sense. Logically, why would the devil want to drive out his own tribe, right? his own people? No kingdom can stand if there's division amongst the ranks, right? Doesn't make sense. Secondly, he says, in fact, the strong man needs to be tied up and bound before the house can be plundered. What does this mean? He's talking in a parable. He's making reference to the miracles he's already been performing. He's been casting out demons, right? That's part of his work. He's been healing people, casting out evil spirits. uh, And that's what he's doing. He's binding the strong man by doing that, those miracles. He's binding the strong man who is Satan himself, Satan, who has a grip on this world that we live in. Jesus is saying the strong man of the house needs to be bound first. For Jesus to rescue the world, he'll need to first tie up the strong man. Satan needs to first be bound for salvation to occur. Do you guys are you guys following where I'm going with this? Plundering. Now that word is such strong language. We, we, of course, it's negative language. You think about looting and people uh, taking something that doesn't belong to you. That plundering. But this parable, Jesus is saying, he's saying uh, he, for him to reclaim the world, our souls, he needs to first bind up the strong man, tie up the strong man who wields influence and power over us. He cannot coexist with Satan. For him to save the world, he needs to first defeat Satan. Then he can save the world. And we see that, don't we? We've already been seeing that throughout uh, the Bible, throughout Mark's gospel. And even in the first chapter, he casts out evil spirits. What is this saying about Jesus? He is far more superior than the devil himself. But thirdly, verse 28, he says this as well. He says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. 
Now, this verse about this unforgivable sin, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, it really stumps a lot of people. Like, what? There's a, there's a sin that's unforgivable? I thought all sin was forgivable. How do I know if I've committed this sin, if it's unforgivable, it's this eternal sin? Mark gives us an idea. What he does is he gives us a commentary after this verse. In verse 30, he says this. He says, because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus says it. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So Mark is actually putting this comment there about why Jesus just said that. He is saying this because they said he has an impure spirit. Remember, it's all about the context, right? As we understand and interpret the Bible, it's all about the context. These teachers are saying, you're driving out demons by the devil's power, but Jesus is saying, it's not the devil's power that I have to drive out evil spirits, it's the Holy Spirit's power that I have to drive out evil spirits. So by saying that he has an impure spirit then, what are they doing? They're not recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember the beginning of Mark. Jesus gets baptized. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And do you remember what happens at the baptism? The clouds are torn open and God's voice is booming from heaven. He says, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But what else happens? They saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit's power. God has given recognition that Jesus will be the Messiah, the Son of God that forgives sins. But if you come to Jesus and you can't see that, if you come to Jesus and, and, and you think instead that he's possessed by Satan, you think that he's the bad guy, that he's bad, then of course, how are you going to approach him to get forgiveness of sins? Because there's an underlying belief there that you don't actually believe he can provide it. You see, that idea is the unforgivable sin. To see that Jesus is, is a bad guy, of course you're not going to get forgiven if you don't come to him and approach him to ask for forgiveness. Now he gives, us, he gives them that warning. They're in danger of committing this unforgivable sin, that claim, claiming that Jesus is not good, not powerful, not able to forgive sins. If you're here and you're worried that you're, you're committing the unforgivable sin, well, the, fear, the, the, the sheer fact that you're feeling worried means that you haven't committed it. You're okay. But the warning is still there for all of us. Don't let your heart be hardened to sin before Jesus. To think Jesus isn't powerful enough to work in our hearts to save you and I. You and I, we have to come before Jesus. And we have to be careful of who we conclude him to be. Many will spend, spend their whole life thinking uh, that Jesus is the bad guy. And if you spend your whole life thinking that about who Jesus is, that he's, he's bad for the world, bad for society, bad for humanity, and you never come to him in repentance, never come to him asking for forgiveness, then you would have committed this very sin, the unforgivable sin. It makes sense, doesn't it? But see the flip side of this statement in verse 28. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, people can be forgiven of all their sins. Jesus makes it clear that all our sins can be forgiven if we approach him. We can be cleansed. Our sin can be paid for by him. But the warning is there for the teachers of the law, for the crowds listening, for us reading these words. We need to come before him. We need to know that all our sins can be forgiven. We can approach him and see him as our Lord and our God. You know, often I hear people who, 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 who are struggling in life, and I, and I talk to them about Jesus, and they say to me, I feel like I'm too far gone from God. I'm too far away from him. 
I'm too lost to receive his forgiveness and his mercy. Christianity isn't for me. But Jesus is saying you can come before him and find forgiveness. There is no one that's too far away. All sins can be forgiven. It's such a wonderful truth that we can hold on to. That before God we're all sinners and we all need him. That there's no one greater than anyone else. That we're all on the same equal playing field in need of Christ, in need of his grace. You know, we don't need to be ashamed anymore of our sin. We don't need to hide in shame any longer. Yes, we might have hurt God. We might have hurt people in the past. But we can, in our humility and our repentance, turn back to God and surrender before the cross of Christ and cry, God, forgive me for my sins. And we can have a confidence that God hears our prayers and that Jesus' death is sufficient for our forgiveness. Now, that's the filling okay, of our sandwich. Really important because it gives flavor. It gives us texture. Right? We need the filling of a good sandwich. That's what the filling is. The teachers of the law fail to recognize who he is, the Savior, Lord, and Son of God. Now, keep that in mind as we get to our last slice. Right? The, the teachers of the law think he's bad. The family think he's mad. It's sad. Right? Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Right, last slice of the sandwich, we return right back to the scene. Jesus' family, they've come down to get him to take charge of him. They're outside. Notice what's happening there. The people are crowded around Jesus inside the house, sitting at his feet. Where are his family? They're outside the house, standing on the street. That rhymes with feet. They're outside, standing on the street. People are inside, sitting at his feet. Jesus is told his mothers and brothers are looking for him. From his birth story, we know his father is Joseph, mother is Mary. At this point, we can assume Joseph has most likely passed away. He doesn't come up again in the narrative of the gospel. We're told Jesus, though, has siblings. Here the brothers are mentioned. If you comb through the gospels, actually you'll discover their names. He's got brothers named James and Jude who wrote two books uh, of, the, of the New Testament, so the book of James, the book of Jude, you can find those in your New Testament. They're his brothers, his blood brother, physical brothers. There's also Simon and Joseph that get named too throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus had brothers. They're looking for Jesus. They've come down to look for Jesus to do what? To take charge of him. Remember that first slice of the sandwich. When Jesus hears about this from people, uh, that's, you know, the message has been passed to him, he says this, verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mothers, here are my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. How would you feel if you heard that as a family member? The message got to you and you're like, what? Did he just say that? Did he just diss us in front of all these people? Dissed mum in front of all these people? My mother and my brothers are those seated in this inner circle at his feet. That's what he's saying. Now, now we can't draw too many conclusions saying that Jesus just dismissed his family and that he doesn't care about them. No, if, throughout the Bible, there's another instance that in the end of John's gospel at his death, he says to John, his disciple, to look after his mother Mary. So he cares about his mom. It's not that he doesn't care about his mom, but he's making a bigger statement here, isn't he? He's making a statement that's bigger than just his, his, his physical blood family. He's making a statement about his spiritual family. What does it mean to truly know and follow Jesus? 
you know, we, we get on social media and following someone is just scrolling through and liking their, their post and making a comment, wishing them a happy birthday. Is that what we do with Jesus? We're just scrolling through, liking his post, wishing him a happy birthday at Christmas time? Are we just giving him lip service? Maybe a prayer here and there when we need something. Well, what does Jesus say? His mother and his brothers are those who obey God's will. Who does God's will? What is God's will? It's to glorify God in your life. To recognize and obey Jesus as Lord and King. The ones who sit at his feet, who listen to him, who do God's will. It's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's crystal clear. It's, it's about obedience. And let me, let me spell it out. It's not about just good intentions. It's not about just going through the motions. It's not even just about being a nice person. It's not about giving yourself the, the name, I'm a Christian or a believer. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus who obeys Jesus. A follower of Jesus is not, it's not the same as a follower on Instagram that likes and comments. A follower of Jesus will lay down their very life and take up their cross for Jesus in daily repentance and obedience to what God wants of them. Now I get it, right? Obedience makes us cringe. Obedience to God sounds like such a dirty word when it comes to how, how people see faith and religion it turns people off. Obedience? It's not common to hear that, hey, Christians, you just blindly obey an outdated religion. But let me remind you, when we know who Jesus is, when we realize he's, he's not mad and he's not bad, but he's good and loving and kind and gracious and merciful, that he has saved us by paying for our sin on our behalf through his own sacrificial death, when we understand that, when we feel that, when we recognize that, when we see Jesus for that, we'll see his beauty, won't we? We'll see joy and adoration. There is no other worthy of worship. There is no other worthy of our obedience. It's far from blind obedience. It comes from a heart that truly knows the goodness of our Lord and Savior. And here's the kicker, right? We have his family here trying to take charge of him, trying to take control of Jesus, what he's doing. And isn't that so easy for many of us to do? We want to take charge of Jesus. Yeah, I'll take the name Christian. I'll say that I'm part of his family. I go to church. I grew up in a Christian family. I even did classes, perhaps, at church or at Bible college. Wouldn't Jesus be pleased with me? Surely he listens to my prayers, and he'll do as I ask of him, right? I can control Jesus if I just do all the right things, if I'm just in with him. Isn't that probably what his family is thinking right now? Hey, he's, our, he's my son. He's my brother. Of course he'll listen to me. They can take charge of this man. But they've got it so wrong. Because he's not just any man. Yeah, they might have had the right intentions, right? To take care of him, right? He's not eating. He's getting smothered. He's getting, you know, there's crowds all around him. They want to take care of him. They want to take him home so no one can get to him. But they need to recognize who he is. And that's what he wants them to do. Recognize that he is Lord. They can't take charge of him, and so can't we. And the amazing thing is, at his death, his brothers and his mother realize who he is. They realize he's the son of God. Imagine that. Imagine worshiping your son or your brother, calling your brother and God. They're not divine. And they, re they know that. Uh, Mary, she's not divine. Even if our Catholic friends say so. Jesus is the divine one. 
and his brothers James and Jude, his very brothers, write books in the Bible for us to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And so we who know this, who have the Bible, who know the stories about Jesus, who have met Jesus through our experiences, through our lives, through our church, where do you stand? Are you on the outside, on the street, looking in? Or are you inside, sitting at his feet, in obedience to him and his will? I think this is worth reflecting on. Are you confident that you're not just a fan, but you're a follower of Jesus? And what gives you that confidence? Is it because you come to church? Because sometimes you pray, sometimes you read your Bible, sometimes you serve at church in the, in the, in the band perhaps, or you say grace at the dinner table. Maybe you feel confident because you know me, you know the pastor, you've been to the pastor's house, and surely the pastor's down with Jesus, so by proximity, you're down with Jesus too. What gives you that confidence to say you're a follower of Jesus? Don't get me wrong. I believe we're saved by faith in God's grace through Christ alone. Yes, we're saved. Our works don't save us. But for those who are saved by faith, how has your faith shown itself? How has your faith produced fruit? That's the result of faith. Faith in Jesus means you and I won't ever be the same again. There should be a transformation. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Our faith isn't in ourselves. Our faith is in Jesus. Have you seen fruit show itself in your life? Does repentance and obedience mark your life since you've put your faith in Jesus? Let me ask you this. Are you aware of the depths of your sin? Does your sin grieve you? Do you come to Jesus and pray for forgiveness? Do you ask the Spirit to help you against temptation? to fight habitual sin in your life? Does generosity and sacrifice and love and selflessness and patience and hospitality and justice, do those things show itself in your life as an expression of your obedience to Jesus? Do you see him as a Lord, the one you follow, the one whose footsteps you strive to walk in? Or do you, like the others in the story, think Jesus is mad? or bad, a lunatic, a liar. It will be hard. I'm not going to lie, it's going to be hard. Obedience is going to come at a cost. The cost, you, you'll be making sacrifices. It will impact your lifestyle, the choices you make when you're a disciple of Jesus. To obey him means you need to surrender parts of your life that you can't hold on to. And let's be honest, you can't worship sin and worship Jesus too. But let me assure you, when you sit at his feet, and you see this man for who he truly is, you'll see how worthy he is. You'll see how worthy he is of our worship in our very lives. Let me finish. You see, the thing about fans is fans can be really flaky, can't they? They might love you one day, hate you another. Potterheads, right? They love Harry Potter, right? And I'm sure they would have worshipped J.K. Rowling, the author. But as soon as J.K. Rowling comes out and shares her opinion on gender, which was really controversial a couple of years ago, she lost tons of fans. Isn't that what we do with, our, with, the, with the celebrities that end up being washed out and they do things that we just don't think is impressive? Yeah, sure, we like their music still, but we're not fans. Fans one day. Fans are flaky. And I know that that is also true for many who are part of Jesus' fan club. It is so common. And it's so easy, too, to call ourselves Christians. 
We like that Jesus did miracles. We love that he's a, a great teacher, that he loved people. He had good morals. He loved the unlovable in society. Many people outside of the church love that about Jesus. Many people outside of the church are fans of Jesus as well, even if they don't call themselves Christian. Many of us know this great stuff about Jesus. We want to be part of his fan base. We want to be Christians. But are we just fans? Are we only taking the parts of Jesus that we like, giving him lip service and feeling like we've, we've ticked that box? Fans are flaky. But followers, disciples of Jesus, Christians, we'll take up our cross and we'll follow Christ. We'll recognize him for who he truly is, our Lord, our God, our King, the one who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our obedience. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you knowing that we aren't perfect, knowing that uh, we do have sin in our lives. But at the same time, Lord, we come before you knowing that we have a great God in Jesus who has died for our sin, that we are forgiven when we come to you in repentance and obedience. When we come before you seeking you and desiring you, I do pray, Lord, that you will help us to be a people who, who aren't just fans but followers, people who know you, know, know Christ and know his, his sacrifice for us not only knows it, but feels it deeply, so that our lives are lives that are changed, that are transformed, that have the Spirit of God in us, Lord, so that we can live lives that do honor you, that do please you, that do make the name of Jesus great. I do pray, Lord, that you'll help us uh, to, Lord, to, to be a people who, are, who go deep with the gospel in our lives, to be disciples, authentic disciples, in the way that we follow. But we can only do that, Lord, with your help, with the power of your Spirit. Help us, to Lord, to, to be a people that, that, that are Christians, who take up our cross, who follow Jesus daily. We pray for this in your son's name. Amen.